my friend, Daniel Crossman, to come and share with us. Thanks, Nick. Okay, well, uh, good to see everybody. Like Nick said, my name is Daniel Crossman. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, usually my wife and our newborn son sit in that back corner amongst the ever-growing horde of children. Uh, in this church. So I'm happy to be here and um, excited to share a little bit about my story. Um, to, to start off, I want to share a section of one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, which is Psalm 118. And it says, uh, give thanks to the Lord, uh, for he is good. His love endures forever. And some translations say his faithful love endures forever. Okay, so to start off, I'm going to take you to the far distant future of 2010. And uh, in 2010, that summer was an atypical summer for me. Um, I started experiencing some strange symptoms. Uh, I had just finished my first year at college, and um, I was extremely tired, which is not a strange symptom for a, a kid after freshman year of college. Uh, but I was sleeping a lot, a lot. It's like all I wanted to do was just sleep. And then things like my fingernails turned purple. Um, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And as the summer went on, uh, the doctors just couldn't figure out what the heck was going on with me. And so this went on all summer long. And uh, by the end of the summer, they said, well, uh, you have mono, I guess. And they said, you can go back to college. Uh, we just want you to get your, your blood checked every couple weeks. I said, okay. And I packed up and I went back to college, which for me was on the East Coast, so far away from, from family here in, in South Dakota. Two weeks came and went. Um, I went in, I got my blood drawn, and uh, that led to a call with the doctor saying, uh, Mr. Grossman, you need to come in immediately. Uh, your blood levels are extremely, extremely low, dangerously low. You need a, a blood transfusion. We need to give you some blood. Okay. So I packed up, had a friend uh, take me down to the ER. I made sure to pack up my homework because priorities. And uh, we got down to the ER. And uh, as a side note, when you're given blood, when you're that low on blood, it's really, really easy to see why the biblical analogy for life is blood. Because I could literally feel warmth extend through my body to the ends of my fingertips and things that I didn't really realize like how foggy my brain had been or how tired I had been, started to become, wow, I feel like a totally new person. Uh, but that didn't really explain like where the blood was going in the first place in, until uh, the next morning. So they said, we want to watch you for the night. Uh, we're going to check you in. And the only place that we have room for you is in our new cancer wing. That's foreshadowing for anybody tracking here. Uh, and so they, uh, they checked me in. The next morning, uh, a doctor walked through the door, and as I was rubbing sleep out of my eyes, I remember thinking to myself, um, man, dude, you got to put on a smile. Like, <laughs> like, you look like you just saw a ghost. And he wasted no time. He jumped right into it and uh, said, Mr. Grossman, there's, there's just no way, easy way to tell you this, but I'm pretty sure you have cancer. So that will wake you up. You know, I, uh, my family was back in South Dakota, it was a Saturday morning, um, and all my friends were, were on campus. And so that began a three-and-a-half-year journey of chemotherapy. So three-and-a-half years of getting treatment for chemo uh, through drugs. 
And, um, you know, my, my life changed overnight. I went from playing hours of indoor soccer and ultimate frisbee uh, to my life being a hospital bed for, for a long, long time. And that was a tough transition. Um, with with uh, chemotherapy, you kind of just, like, you, you just have to white-knuckle it. It's just part of the nature of it. Um, there's a certain level of bearing down and just, it's the best thing for your body, so you have to let it happen. And, um, you know, I had grown up in the church, so I had grown up hearing stories of incredible Christians that had gone through some stuff that was way worse than anything I was going through. I had grown up reading about martyrs in the Bible, and so in my mind, I had this idea of what I was supposed to be during a trial. I I didn't really give thought to that I should just be a cancer patient. (laughs) And so I began to try to put on a face that I thought that the church needed, that my parents needed, that my family needed, that my friends needed, um, and that God needed from me. And so I began, much like the physical side of me, began to white-knuckle my spiritual life. And I began to just bear down, put my head down, and anytime anytime somebody asked me, how am I doing? Through gritted teeth, I would say, God is good. (laughs) And how that looked like externally changed over the years, because you can't keep that up long term. And um, so uh, I I continued with that mindset. Uh, But that undercurrent of ignoring uncomfortable realities that were popping up inside of me stayed the same over the years. That undercurrent of, of not wanting to look at the hard stuff stayed the same. Because as time went on, I, I thought that I had done it right. right? I, I, I prayed the prayers. I had read the books. I had said the things. I had shared my story. I had read the verses. And holy cow, I had read the verses a billion times. You know, the, all things work together for the good of those who love him. And... And for I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil. And uh, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters. That was a, ooh, <laughs> that was a tough one. And I had read it a million times. And the thing was, it did not feel real to me. I would read it over and over again, and it just did not feel real. And, and so that was confusing to me. If, if I was to consider it all joy, where was the joy? And if God had good for me, where was the good? Um, Because my internal life was a mess. It was a complete mess. Um, Chemo, again, just the mindset, it it, it changes to survival. And um, it's the, the goal for sure is to finish the last dose. But when you're going through it, it's to finish the next dose. And so you think, okay, once I get through that dose, uh, I only have three more of this drug, so maybe those, the next drug won't hurt me so bad or won't feel so bad. And that's how you get through it, step by step, day by day. And you do have this, like, golden dose in the back of your head. That, that golden dose is the very last one that you'll get. Um, but at least for me, I didn't really allow myself to think about that until that time came. And I figured that since chemo is what got me into this mess, that as soon as I finished that last dose, my internal world would, would right itself. And I figured my relationship would, with God would make sense again. 
Um, I would find that internal peace. I'd be sure about what was going on with me. I could just get through that last dose. But um, that last dose came and went. And uh, nothing really changed inside of me. In fact, uh, things began to get worse. Uh, I continued to run away from those uncomfortable truths. Um, the, the thing about uh, difficult emotional situations is if you ignore them, they get worse. And other emotions begin to pop up. Anger, bitterness, resentment, confusion. And those emotions, though I did sometimes a good job of hiding it on the outside, were starting to grow in me. And I was becoming angry. Angry at the world, angry at God, angry at the church, angry at other Christians. This was a very, very difficult and dark time for me. And um, you can't be a hurt person without hurting other people. And so those closest to me, I think, took some of that brunt, some of that emotional brunt. And I continued just to become more and more angry. And to make a long story short, it wasn't until uh, that I learned how to be honest with myself and made the decision to look at myself in the face, to look at my problems in the face, and to look at the fears that I had been avoiding in the face. Because the truth was, I uh, felt betrayed by God, and I did not know if I could trust him. It made sense to me, you know, that I had gotten sick. It was never like a why me type thing. Um, but I was scared to trust God again. Because I felt like I had fully trusted him before, and then I got cancer. <laughs> and so deep, deep questions started to emerge in my life. Um, is there a God? If there is, can I trust him? Can I trust his word? Can I trust the entire uh, system of beliefs that I grew up believing in? These are big questions uh, that I was terrified to look at. And it wasn't until I was honest with myself. It wasn't until, honestly, I was taught how to be honest with myself. And it wasn't until I found a trusted confidant or two that I could be totally honest with. It wasn't until I found people who weren't going to shame me for having those questions and who weren't going to belittle me into believing what they felt was right. It wasn't until I found people who could say, let's talk, and, and, and I'm going to love you for it. So, I wish I had a beautiful story with a nice bow on top for you, um, but I'm finding that God works in the gray and in the messy. And I got a lot of mess and gray in, in my life, and I think we all do too. Because um, the truth is, cancer uh, is as personal as we are. And um, praise God, I'm on this side of it, but I know probably every single one of us in this church um, could have a story about how cancer has, has affected them in some way. And it doesn't always turn out the way it did for me. So as I was putting this together, um, because I'm a son of a pastor, I thought, what the heck is a, what, what, what's the point of this? Like, what's the takeaway here? This is just depressing. And so um, I, I really thought of our college students. Um, and um, because I was in college when I got diagnosed. And, and I thought, you know, when, when tough things happen in life, when tough things happen in life, um, be honest with yourself. Don't run away. 
And the only person you need to be during those times is who God already made you be. You do not need to be anybody. Secondly, and this is good advice for everybody, is find a confidant and choose them wisely. Choose them wisely. Find somebody that, that knows every little bat, uh, bit and piece of you, and, and you know every bit and piece of them. Um, church, we need to be a vulnerable people. Um, and I know that vulnerable is a uh, buzzy word right now, but, but we need to be a people that, um, that listens like Christ did, especially towards people and situations that make us uncomfortable. Be like Christ who, when he was met with lepers and diseased and blind and the destitute, touched them, put his hands on their faces, listened to them and loved them. Because the truth is that I found and find God not in a blind, soldier-like, rigid adherence to faith, but in a broken, bare, vulnerable adherence to truth and honesty. That's where God is. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, I definitely took away from that, that my relationship with God is only as good as how honest I want to be about myself kind of thing. So thank you for sharing that, because I think I needed to hear just that. Um, again, our prayer time is uh, usually a time to share and pray with one another. We just want to remind you that we have these prayer cards in the back by our giving box, little basket there. And if you would like us to pray for you, please know uh, Evan and I will be praying for you, our elders will be praying for you, and we'll get these in the hands of other church members so that they can be praying for you. So uh, don't leave here without leaving uh, something that you really want uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ to be praying about. And with that, will you join me in prayer as uh, we welcome Joey up for our sermon today. Father, thank you for your goodness. And thank you, Lord, that sometimes your goodness is hard to see in all the toughness of life. But your goodness does prevail. Light does come out of darkness. And it's not always uh, picture pretty or <laughs> perfect or that sort of thing, but, but God, it does come. Thank you for loving Daniel so much that you would entrust him with that trial. And thank you for seeing him through it. And we know that you'll continue to see him through uh, the rest of the days of his life. Um, help him to continue being vulnerable and honest uh, with that. Help us to do the same. And now, Lord, we pray for our brother Joey as he comes up to share your word with us today. We pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts, that you would plow up the fields of hardness that might have developed in our hearts and make it good fertile soil uh, for the seed of your word. And we pray that your spirit would work through joy, rest upon joy, anoint joy uh, to speak into our lives so that we would have a clearer picture of who you are and how we ought to walk with you. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. <clears throat> I just want to say, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing that. You may not have realized this, but there is a lot of overlap between what you just shared and <laughs> what I'm about to preach on. And that was a good word for all of us. So let's pray again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your glory. And Lord, even as we just learned, and I pray 
that as we continue to learn this, that even in our suffering, the most dark uh, times when we are most broken, that you truly do work all things together for the good of those who love you. It may not always be in the way that we expect, but Lord, um, your ways are higher than ours, and we trust you with our lives. We pray now, Lord, that your word would be spoken clearly. Thank you very much, Lord, for everything that you've done. And it's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. All right, so as Nick said, my name is Joey. Hello, everyone. It is nice to see you here today. Um, I'm an elder here at Common Ground, and I have been invited to preach today in our series entitled Biblia Obscura. The purpose of this series is to go over some of the often overlooked and sometimes dismissed passages of the Bible to lean into the fact that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It doesn't matter how obscure it seems to us, God places these passages in Scripture for a good reason. As Paul says, for our profit, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Lord wants us to know and to understand these passages for our benefit, that we might love him and serve him and others better every day. And the philosophy for selecting the passage today is no different. So today, we will be in the book of Job, specifically chapters 32 through 37, in which a man we know as Elihu, the son of Barakel, speaks. Show of hands, who has no idea who that is? Okay, well, when I read, you must all be better than me, because when I read Job for the first time, I had no idea who Elihu was. When I had heard of Job, I knew of Job, I knew of his three friends, I knew of God, but I had no idea about Elihu. I honestly think he is the most forgotten character in Job. And I think there are many reasons for why that is, but perhaps the most sensible is that Elihu's words, and I would even say the whole book of Job, are very difficult words to wrestle with and understand. For you see, Elihu has strong words of correction for Job and his three friends, and it isn't always clear, even amongst many scholars and church leaders, whether his words are good, bad, or somewhere in between. Elihu says a lot. In fact, his discourse is the longest uninterrupted speech in the entire book, even longer than God's at the end. And when these words are written in nuanced Hebrew poetry about nuanced topics and arguments, namely our place when we are suffering and God's role in our suffering, it makes sense why we can just get lost and maybe move on. But friends, we shouldn't. This is precisely where we should push further up and further in. God has given us Elihu for many reasons, and I hope today that we can learn that God, through Elihu, shows us what godly, Christ-like rebuke and correction looks like. Again, God, through Elihu, shows us what godly, Christ-like rebuke and correction looks like. And I hope we can learn from him, in those unfortunate times when rebuke and correction is necessary, the right words to, excuse me, the right words to say, how to say them, and what situations to say them in, in order that in order to glorify God and love one another in the best way we can in rebuke. So let's read the first portion of our text this morning. We'll be in Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, where it reads, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. 
Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of Elihu's words. We thank you that you have given this to us for our profit. And we do just pray that we would feel that right now. Lord, may you speak mightily through me. and May it be you who is magnified, not me. Thank you for your word, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So before jumping into some of the literary context of what we just read, I want to say a word on rebuke. Let's be honest, we don't usually say before coming to church on Sunday morning, oh boy, I really just can't wait to be corrected by my brothers and sisters this morning. It's a lot easier to lean into scripture for the teaching and the training in righteousness parts, but Paul still says that the word of God has much profit for reproof and for correction. And while as Christians we may recognize the good in that, oftentimes our flesh and our sinful nature recoils at the idea of being corrected especially in our culture, which in many cases treats any attempt to correct as an offense, no matter how gently and patiently it's done or the intent behind it. And it doesn't help that preaching on rebuke is in some ways like playing with fire. Sometimes preachers use teaching on this subject to point the finger at others and to put themselves on a rebuke pedestal saying, oh, you did this, you did this, you did this. Other times, preachers can water down or avoid the teaching altogether and downplay its importance in the life of a healthy church, our fights against sin, and effective love for one another. But despite the potential pitfalls of this subject, we know that it is essential. We need to know this as Christians, how to give rebuke, but even more importantly, I'd say, how to receive it. And Proverbs is replete with wisdoms, uh, wisdom on goodness, on the goodness of rebuke and correction. Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, 32 says, Whoever ignores destruction, instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 27, verse 6 is one of my favorites. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If a friend loves us, he will wound us for our good. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, speaking specifically to the Lord's discipline. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And I think Elihu and the book of Job teaches us valuable lessons on both how to give and receive rebuke. So, that being said, to understand Elihu's words, we do need to understand a little bit about what Job actually says or what the whole book says up until this point. So, briefly summarizing the book of Job, which some of you may know already. Uh, Job is a blameless and upright man. He's very prosperous, and he loves God. He worships him rightly. But when Satan comes before Job, presents him, or excuse me, presents himself before God, God mentions Job and his righteousness to Satan. But Satan scoffs, and he says, ah, Job, he's only righteous because you've blessed him. If you take away his prosperity, he'll curse you to your face. So, God allows Satan to attack Job's prosperity. 
And Satan takes away all of his children. He kills them all at one moment and takes away all of his wealth. But at the end of the first chapter, Job still says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He did not sin. Job did not sin. He held fast to God. And the same thing happens in chapter 2, when this time Satan's like, well, pff, sure, take away his prosperity, but if he still has his health, then he'll, bless, he'll, of course, love you and worship you. But if you take away his health, then he'll curse you to your face. So God allows Satan to do this again, and covers, Satan covers Job with boils from the crown of his head to the toe of his foot. But in this same way, Job did not sin against the Lord. Though his suffering was very great, he did not sin. And at the end of chapter 2, we see Job's three friends. They come to comfort him. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And at the end of chapter 2, it says that they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They did well to do this. Job was in immense pain and suffering, and they did well just to be with him in that moment. But then... Chapter 3 happens, and then the next 29 chapters happens, and when Job and his three friends mess it all up. Because Job opens his mouth, and he says he cursed the day of his birth, in the first verse. And then after this, notice in chapters 1 and 2, it was very careful to say that Job did not sin. After this, no such statement about Job's sinlessness is made. And then the arguing that occurs in this 29 chapters, it's really centered around one question. What caused Job's suffering? And I, ha I think if the slides are still working, I do have a slide that shows sort of the basic position of Job's three friends to make it easy for us and Job himself. But throughout these 29 chapters, this is essentially what Job's three friends say. They say that God is just, and God only causes bad things to happen to sinful people Therefore, Job, since you are suffering, you must have sinned, and you need to repent. Job, thinking he is right, he says something different. He says, I have done nothing wrong, but I am suffering. Therefore, God counts me his enemy. He's unreasonable in counting me as, my enemy, as his enemy. And by the end, though Job's arguments were much more sophisticated, and you see him wrestling throughout the whole book to see, like, appeal to God, but also to his own righteousness, by the end, Job is inflamed with pride, even challenging God to go to court with him by the end. And you know, last week when Nick preached on the theme of nakedness throughout the Bible, how the only antidote to our shame and our nakedness is Jesus Christ clothing us with that? Listen to what Job says in chapter 29. He says, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Sounds very unlike the message we heard last week. Job was filled with pride and righteous indignation. And granted, he was, he was suffering immensely. He was brought to his breaking point, and his three friends did not help. But in the end, Job was appealing to his own works rather than God. And this is where Elihu comes in. Before the Lord speaks and answers Job personally, Elihu is sent by God to correct Job and his three friends for their errors. And this is what we'll be looking at today. And the last little, um, I guess, disclaimer slash preamble, um, is there's, as I said, there's a lot of maybe discussion and sometimes disagreement about whether or not Elihu is right. So 
But I do hope that the words of Elihu will become evident that he is a good voice in the book of Job. That being said, I do still think it's helpful to sort of look at the other factors that make us think or that should lead us to say that Elihu is in the right. And there are two main reasons why I think Elihu's right. The first is that Job does not argue with Elihu, even though Elihu gives Job multiple opportunities to speak up. Every time Job's three friends retorted to him, Job had an answer immediately. But when Elihu speaks, Job is silent, even though, like I said, Elihu offers many opportunities for him to speak up. And then the even more important one is that at the end of the book, when Job, or excuse me, God restores Job's fortunes and makes, it, uh, makes him prosperous again, Job, God corrects Job's three friends for their errors. But Elihu is not included in this list. Elihu is not corrected by God at the end. So if God doesn't correct him, I see no reason to say why his words are wrong. So I think we're finally ready. <laughs> Let's look at Elihu's words to see what we can learn from him. So the first part that we read, chapter 32, verse 2, it says that Elihu, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And here I think we learn the basis for Elihu's correction that is good in its intent. Because after waiting 29 chapters to see if Job or his three friends would come to the right answer, they did not. Both sides ended up making a theological mess in their understanding of Job's suffering. They believed and declared many wrong things about who God is, and this angered Elihu greatly. And this is what sets Elihu apart from the others, and what gives his correction substance. His correction comes from a place of desiring to see God understood rightly, especially considering Job's suffering. But the theology of Job and his three friends made no such provision for suffering being a means that God uses for his people's good. For this is what Elihu actually answers when he actually gets to the question of what does cause Job's suffering? Why is God allowing this to happen to Job? This is what he says. In chapter 33, verses 16 through 18, he says that Elihu says that God opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn a man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Keeps back, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. What does that mean? Essentially, God exposes us. He exposes our darkness. He exposes our sinful nature that we may turn to him, that we might be walking in new life from repenting and turning from our sin. The New Testament version of this, uh, in Peter, he uses the image of purifying metal. Or in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, why do we undergo trials? It's so that God may refine us, like gold, that we may be put into the furnace, and that the impurities may rise to the surface and you will scrape them off, and in that we will be more pure, and our faith is even more precious than gold, is what Peter says. And if you actually read the uh, discourse of Elihu yourself, all six chapters, you'll see, especially toward the end, he is completely fixed on magnifying God. In fact, 
pretty much the last four chapters of his speech are just him waxing poetic about praising God for his justice, majesty, glory, and so on. So what can we take from this? Well, I think one of the main things is that godly rebuke and correction will always be in line with a true understanding of who God is and who we ought to be before him. Godly rebuke and correction will always be in line with a true understanding of who God is and who we ought to be before him. Because unlike Job's three friends and Job, Elihu relies completely on God's character for his answer. And so it should be with us. When we are in a situation where we feel the Holy Spirit leading us to correct someone, or if we are corrected by someone else, we must not rely on ourselves or our own righteousness. We must rely completely on God's character for giving the rebuke or receiving it. Only he can give us the grace, strength, humility, and love we need to give and receive correction well. And the rest of what I'm going to say here, the rest of the practical things that I think we can learn from Elihu are built on top of this principle. So if you hear nothing else, please learn that, that godly rebuke will always come from a, care, from a heart and mindset of seeing God glorified and being in line with his character. So what are some of the practical things that we see from Elihu? Well, in verses 4 and 5, we see, of chapter 32, it says that Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. I think we can learn from, right, uh, excuse me, from Elihu's righteous and patient anger. Because you see, Elihu is filled with righteous anger, but he does not burst out. He waits to speak. And there are many times in our lives as well where it is good to be angry, but we should always check this anger with slowness to speak. It's the James principle. In James 1.19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Job's three friends were very quick to speak and correct Job for every little thing he said. And what resulted was four bulls in a headlock. They got nowhere. Why who does the opposite? He listens and he waits in humility. He jumps in only when no other answer has been found. He has thoroughly tested his anger in his heart before acting on it. For even he says later in chapter 32, verse 18, he says, For I am full of words but the spirit within me constrains me. He lets his anger out in a controlled manner, and he does it right, rightly for God's glory. So we also should treat our anger in this way. There are many times in situations of rebuke where we will get angry, whether in giving or receiving. But how often do we act on this anger in haste? If giving correction, we become more focused on how one's offense is just annoying to us and personally offensive rather than having a loving heart toward them. And if we're receiving correction, how, how often do we just automatically assume that someone is correcting us because they just don't like us and are against us, instead of actually considering the possibility that they're trying to pick a thorn out of our eye? And let this anger be tested in our hearts, like Elihu, and let us pray that the Lord would give us grace to act on it in the right way, the way that makes Jesus look great. We can also learn... From Elihu's boldness to speak. That's the second practical thing. Elihu's boldness to speak. In chapter 32, verses 6 through 22. For this is what Elihu says. 
in verse 6 through 10 of chapter 32. For he says, I am young in years, young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and let many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. He lands on an important truth that gives him the courage to speak. Namely, that it is the spirit in a person, the spirit of God in them, that gives them wisdom, not aged. He describes himself as timid and afraid, but what gives him the courage to speak is knowing that the Spirit of God is with him, giving him the wisdom he needs to correct Job and his three friends. And again, in the New Testament, it's the same with us. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. As you see, it is God's spirit in us that allows us to understand spiritual truths and to actually grow in our love and our righteousness for other people, and especially in situations of rebuke. It is God's spirit in us that empowers us. And if we are Christians, we have the mind of Christ, which is mind-blowing to actually think that. The number of years you have does not give you wisdom, but only one thing does, and that's the Spirit of God. So how does this play out in practice? Well, Elihu later says in verse 18 of chapter 32 through 22, like I mentioned before, for I am full of words, but the Spirit within me constrains me. He says, behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. We see here that he uses this analogy of his belly being like a wineskin holding wine. What does this actually mean? Like, what, how does that analogy make sense? Well, you see, when you put wine in a wineskin, as it ferments, there are gases that are formed, and the wine continually expands. And if it's a new wineskin... The cloth is unshrunk, and the wineskin is actually able to expand with the increased pressure, but only to a point. There comes a point when the gas becomes too much, and if the wineskin is not able to hold it all, it'll just break open, leading into an uncontrolled outburst of that wine. So when Elihu is waiting to speak, there's this pressure that's building up inside of him. He must speak to relieve the pressure, but he must provide a vent, or else it would burst. See, the things that he needed to say, that the Lord has put on his heart to say, if he did not say them, would have resulted in an uncontrolled outburst of sloppy, hurtful, and angry words. But his speaking like he did when the Spirit is constraining him allowed him to control his words, yet say them boldly. And this is the Spirit of God that gives us this power. To do what Elihu did, it's the Spirit of God. And again, sometimes the Spirit will put something on our hearts that we can't ignore, something that we must say, and it is God-honoring to say it when that time comes. But how do we actually know when the Spirit gives us something like that to say? 
Well, again, if we look to the New Testament, there are a couple things that we can look to. One, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John tells us to test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. How do we know whether or not the right thing to say is what's on our mind? If we test them. Well, how do we test them? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If what, we can be, if what we have to say can be done in power, love, and self-control, then it's probably from the Spirit of God. And I think if we look at Elihu and what he says, we'll see that he had power, love, and self-control in what he spoke. Another practical thing we can learn is uh, Elihu's gentle intent and humility. Because later on in chapter 33, verse 6 and 7, he says to Job, he's now turned from speaking to Job's three friends and is now speaking to Job himself. He says, Behold, Job, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu declares that he is in the same place as Job. He is one of God's creatures, pinched off from clay. And because Elihu, he is just a man, he says that Job does not need to fear him. Elihu is not Job's judge. God is. Elihu's intent, when it says, my pressure will not be heavy upon you, what that all means is essentially that his intent is not to oppress him with words. It's not to crush him. It's just to point him in the direction, to firmly but gently point him into the direction that Job needs to go. I think a story can help illustrate this point. When I grew up as the oldest child, I often placed myself above my brothers. If my brothers ever got in a fight with each other, I would be the first to tattle on them. I would be the one standing behind my parents with a smug look and crossed arms looking at them while they were disciplined. In other words, I was a horrible brother. <laughs> I was placing myself as my judge, <laughs> a judge over the brother. And of course, it's obvious to see here that I should not have done this. My parents were the authority over my brothers, not me. And Elihu does what I did not as a kid. Namely, he rightfully places himself as just a man next to Job, not Job's judge. He lets God do that. So, in our cases, if we need to rebuke someone, we must do it in the same humility and grace. Remember, as Christians, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And God is our Father, not us. We must not place ourselves in his spot. Elihu does this by declaring his gentle intent. And that can also often be a helpful tool for us. Just to actually specifically say to the person that we are rebuking for whatever reason, that we're not their judge. We love them. We care for them. We aren't doing this to bring them down but we're doing this because we want to direct them to Christ. Oftentimes, just declaring that intent can be really helpful in actually navigating through situations of rebuke. And again, when receiving rebuke, it is also important to trust that a brother or sister in Christ is doing this as a brother, not a judge. I know it's hard because sometimes we go into defense mode where as soon as someone attacks us, it's like, why are you doing that? But if we are truly knowledgeable that they are brothers doing it for our good that makes it a lot easier for both parties to give and receive rebuke 
The next practical thing, a lot of practical things here, but it, it's all good, so, <laughs> uh, is Elihu's openness to dialogue, which I mentioned earlier. In chapter 33, verse 5, Elihu says to Job, Answer me if you can. Set your words before me, in order before me. Take your stand. And in verse 32 of chapter 33, Elihu also says, If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. Elihu offers Job the opportunity twice to speak up. He's not trying to plow Job down with his words. Again, my pressure will not be heavy upon you. His desire is to justify Job, and he doesn't want to rebuke him with an off-base accusation. And very practically, this is something that we can do. In a godly way, to rebuke someone well is to be open to dialogue ourselves and also potential correction yourself. And that means providing opportunities for the other person to speak up, whether to explain themselves or if they have any misunderstanding or think you're misunderstanding them, or state how they felt wronged in a certain way. And if there is wrong uh, present that requires a rebuke, I don't know about you, but oftentimes, you know, we're all sinners. (laughs) It's not like one side's perfect and the other's not. Oftentimes there are situations where both parties are wrong in some way. And this comes in the context of reconciliation where both parties are rightful, both give and receive correction. And dialogue is an essential tool for this. And the Lord, in many places, even in the Bible, commands us to go to our brothers and sisters and talk with them if there is wrong between us. Even he goes so far as to say, as before offering your sacrifice to me, go to your brother and make whatever wrong is right between you. These can be hard conversations. I'm not saying it's easy. But... They are so important. So if we are ever in these circumstances, that is one thing that we can do, is be open to dialogue. And then the next thing Elihu does is that Elihu listens and accurately restates Job's words. He actually listened to what Job actually said, and his rebuke is not off base. Because in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 33, or excuse me, 8 through 11, Elihu says, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. What Elihu's doing there is he's saying, I have listened to you, and this is what you have said. This is what you have said, and this is the content that I am rebuking you for. And I know it may sound silly sometimes, but when he actually summarizes and restates what Job said, why is that important? Well, for one, if Elihu didn't restate Job's words, Job would not have had a clear idea of what he was actually being rebuked for. And also by restating Job's words, Elihu gives Job another opportunity to speak up. If Elihu summarized or restated incorrectly, it would have been evident to Job that Elihu misunderstood what he said. And then Job could have called him out on that. And then for us, remember, it's the same as we said before, that Christ-like correction requires good listening. Elihu waited to speak, but he also very clearly demonstrated that he listened to what Job said. It's the James principle. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And again, practically speaking, A good way to emphasize your intent to love someone is to make sure that you are on the same page. 
I think we'll find that many of the disagreements or wrongs that we perceive about one another are largely a result of miscommunication and not actual malicious intent. One of the most helpful things that we can do to pursue unity is to actually make sure that we're on the same page by communicating those things to each other. So that's a lot of the practical stuff. And there is one more main thing that I want to say, and this is, again, in line with the first point, that rebuke should always be centered on God and his character. But we'll actually see the bulk of Elihu's answer to Job. We'll see it's gospel-centered. And this is amazing. So I hope you, I hope you just see this, and it's really cool. But even before that, sorry. <laughs> Notice how much setup Elihu did beforehand, before actually performing the rebuke, before giving the substance. He actually set it up so much beforehand. And to me, this is just so evident that he wanted to do it correctly for God's glory and for Job's benefit. And sometimes we forget that Job did have this friend, but he did. He had a good friend. Job had a good friend. But this is what Elihu says. When he actually gets down to it, this is the answer that, Job, that Elihu gives for Job's suffering. And it's essentially the gospel. So in chapter 33, verse 19 through 28, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread. His flesh is, all, is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, mediator, one for a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he, this mediator, is merciful to him. He says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. I have found a ransom to take your place. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then man who receives this ransom prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face. He sees his redeemer's face with a shout of joy. And he restores to man his righteousness. And this man, this redeemed man, sings before others and says, I have sinned and perverted what is right. And it was not repaid me. I deserved justice and punishment, but I was repaid mercy. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Elihu makes it clear the answer for Job's suffering. God was not doing this for him, for him to be punished. God was doing this for Job, that he might see that he is not righteous on his own. He is not righteous of his own. He needs a redeemer. He needs a ransom to take his place. If there is for him an angel or meteor, mediator, God has found a ransom. And then this man just needs to pray to God and accept this ransom for him. And God does this so that Job and all who are in sin may look upon the light. For this is what Elihu tells Job. He says, no, Job, you are wrong. God is not your enemy. He does all of these things to bring back your soul from wandering, that you may see the light. You do not clothe yourself with righteousness. It's not yours. He does this to point out to you that you cannot be righteous on your own. God is completely sovereign over your suffering, but not because he is your enemy, but because he is your friend. And this is the center of the rebuke. 
And even the rest of these chapters is Elihu just expounding on this. So again, what does this actually mean for us? Well, when we are reproved, rebuked, by God and by other believers, we are not brought down, but we are built up, that we may know the Lord more clearly and that our eyes might be directed to Christ. And in giving our rebuke, our content, the content of our rebuke should be congruent with this gospel. It should be congruent with the Lord's loving will for us. Not to say every rebuke needs a gospel presentation, but if there are no traces of Jesus in it, what good is it? Let our corrections in the receiving and giving of them be Christ and gospel-centered. And in the end, Job repents. Job repents. We'll see in chapter 44, Job repents. For he says, chapter 42, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has no words to say to Elihu. He only speaks to God. He is floored by Elihu's words, but in the best way. And by the time that God does speak, Job is finally ready to repent of his self-righteousness and turn to God for forgiveness. And again, notice Job does not repent to Elihu. He does not repent to Elihu. He repents to God. Elihu was merely the glad ambassador of God, justified Righteously angry, not for himself, but on God's behalf. So what do we do when we are corrected then by another? Well, quite plainly, if there is a genuine wrong that we have done, that we're corrected for, we need to repent. We need to repent. Receiving rebuke is just as hard, if not harder, than giving it. And the only way it can be done well is with a spirit of humility and repentance that seeks to honor and glorify God and our brothers and sisters. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you have just generally struggled with giving or receiving correction in the past. Maybe right now you feel like you're in a situation where you feel the Lord calling you to correct someone, but you don't know how. Maybe you've done it poorly in the past. Maybe none of these. Maybe this is just a word for you to store in your heart for the day of giving or receiving rebuke. In any of these things, I hope that we can see that Elihu and God's word through Elihu shows us how to do it well. It is a tricky thing, but the scriptures are replete with knowledge on how to do it in a Christ-exalting way. And I hope and pray that we will continue to learn what godly rebuke looks like and from what God says to us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again so much that your words though they are sometimes hard for us to hear, they are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. They are pure, and they make us pure. And I thank you, Lord, that your spirit works to, in, in this way in our hearts. 
So, Father, I pray that this word would work in our hearts now, or that as we go from here, that we would remember what you have told us, both in the overarching theological and also in the very nitty-gritty practical. And, Lord, if there be anyone in this room that needs to give or receive correction, I pray that you would prepare their hearts to do it well, because, Lord, it is only by your Spirit that this can be done. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you do. And thank you for Jesus' name, who makes this all even possible. Amen.
chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness who have been trained by you. Go with those words, common ground. Grace and peace. Have a great week.
Cool.